awesome, wonderful, wonderful. My wife, Rachel, I won't always start this way. <laughs> My wife, Rachel, is the most caring and wonderful person I know. She uh, knows how to care for other people in ways that I can only imagine. She is always attentive, can surprise them, and just knows exactly what they need to lift their spirits. And the key to that is she knows how to best do that with my kids and with me. And I'm so thankful for her. And so this past March, Rachel texted me and said, let's surprise the kids. Let's take them to see a movie. And we were going to take them to see the movie The Greatest Showman, which was a movie that they had been listening to the soundtrack to for a while. And uh, they loved the song. And our house uh, may be different from yours. Our house is very loud. And uh, there is a lot of singing and a lot of dancing and playing. And very rarely do we have to scold them, but uh, maybe we do. But anyways, they, uh, it's a loud place, and they each uh, love this soundtrack, and they have been listening to it. So we surprised them, didn't tell them where we were going. Uh, and we went up, so you can imagine the joy on their faces whenever we got to the box office and bought tickets to see the greatest showman, and it was at that newly remodeled theater where everybody has their own recliner. And so we leaned back, and I could turn the seat warmer on, you know, and I was out. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, but it was uh, just a great time, a great memory for us. But our kids still have a favorite song, each of them from that album, and everybody in our family knows what Dad's favorite song is on the Greatest Showman soundtrack. And it's the one at the very end that Hugh Jackman sings called From Now On. Now, Josh Bennett, whenever he heard what I was preaching on this morning, he said, Wes, are you going to sing for us? And uh, I'll save you that and uh, for some other time, maybe. I won't put you through it today. But I do want to share with you some of the lyrics of this song because I think it will help set up our message today. But it says, I saw the sun begin to dim and felt that winter wind blow cold. A man learns who is there for him when the glitter fades and the walls won't hold. Because from that rubble, what remains can only be what's true. If all was lost, there's more I gained because it led me back to you from now on. These eyes will not be blinded by the lights. From now on, what's waited till tomorrow starts tonight. Let this anthem, uh, let this promise in me start like an anthem in my heart. From now on, from now on. I'll let somebody else sing it later. But I really love this song because it really helps to um, characterize this story. Uh, in this movie, Barnum experiences this quick rise to the top and then this dramatic fall and then he has a lesson learned and it's characterized in this song of don't let lights and fame and money and whatever the world has to offer you blind you because in the end you find out what matters most are those who love you most and love you best and care for you most and care for you best. And so today I want us to ask what about us as Christians because of what Christ has done for us should we be living differently? Is there some lesson learned that we can all say today, well, from now on, this is what I'm going to do? And uh, Paul uses this phrase, um, especially about conflict and about re um, reconciliation in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, uh, beginning in verse 14. But to give you a little bit con of context here, you know, it's been said that conflict reveals the measure of a person. How they handle conflict, how they resolve it, really helps you to understand what kind of person you're dealing with. And this is particularly the case for Paul in this letter that he pens that we call 2 Corinthians. And the original recipients of this letter, those people at the church at Corinth, um, 
they were a lot like you and me. Well, I'll, I'll at least put myself in the category. They were a lot like me. Slow learners, kind of set in their ways. These were people who made the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, these are the people that were tempted to, uh, to wander, tempted to stray. And so maybe that sounds a little bit like you. I know it sounds like me. It's not a great thing, but Paul is trying to steer this church back uh, to a, a faithful place because they had fallen for some imposter leaders who did not have the church's best in mind, led them astray, and now Paul is trying to steer them back. And uh, he starts in the first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, where he writes to them, and he, it, it's, it's a tongue lashing in 1 Corinthians because they were doing a lot of things wrong. And he was very blunt about it. He didn't kind of try to cover it up. He was real direct. And so you can imagine there's conflict that's developing between he and the people in this church. He's also addressing how there's conflict already there in the church and how it needs to be resolved. And so with these wounds that maybe Paul has uh, created in the church with this letter, that's kind of what he writes in light of in 2 Corinthians. And he addresses the difficulties between himself and certain people there and um, and it's all about reconciliation but there's a greater thing than us having reconciliation with one another and it's this idea of vertical reconciliation of understanding where we stand with God is so much more important than understanding where we stand with one another so Paul inspired by the Spirit put into words uh, the this letter that is applicable even for us today so I'm gonna read to you from 2nd Corinthians 5 beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that, they, uh, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, Yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, and working together with him. We also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The message of this passage to the church at Corinth is that Jesus died for all believers, making them new in him and sending them as ambassadors to reconcile the world to himself. And today, I want us to consider that God wants you and I to live, in, live different in light of what Christ has done through his death and his resurrection. So how do we do that? Well, I think by looking at this passage, we discover that God wants us to, from now on, stop 
living for ourselves. Start living as ambassadors and stay urgent with the gospel. So we'll start there at the beginning. Let's focus on the first part. From now on, stop living for ourselves. It says in verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Well, if you read the preceding verses, you'll discover that Paul in some ways is taking an assessment of his life. He is recognizing that life on earth is finite, that it will come to an end. And so that's kind of what is influencing him. In fact, if you look at Paul's writings over his life, uh, initially when he wrote about death and the second coming of Christ, he put himself in the category of those who would likely be here when Christ returned. And then it's somewhere along the way he recognized, I may pass away before Jesus returns again. And so he's saying in light of that, in light of the fact that life is short, even for me, Paul, he says in light of that, how am I to live? Well, panic is the wrong way to live always. But urgency, I think, is the answer. Someday you and I are going to give an account for our lives. Therefore, we must minister in an urgent manner. See, I think we just take our spiritual lives so casually. You know, we go to church. We have our Bibles. You know, we take our prayer lives kind of casually. Uh, uh, What we learn in Sunday school, how we apply it to our lives, the conversations we have with folks about God and what he's done in our life and what he's doing through us, we take casually. But Paul says it should be urgent. And we should be motivated to share what God has done in us. In fact, in 2 Corinthians, he points out a few ways that he's motivated. In chapter 4, verse uh, 13, he says, uh, But having the same spirit of faith, according to what is written, I believed, therefore I spoke. He says, we also believe, therefore we also speak. So there's a conviction that he has. Because he's convicted that he believes that God has spoken, then I have to speak as well. So he was motivated by conviction. In chapter 5, verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. So because of the fear of the Lord, he's motivated to share. And then we come to the part here that we're studying today. Verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Now he's motivated to share because of the love of Christ. So I want us to look at that for a minute. The love of Christ. Is he talking about the love that he has for Jesus? Or is he talking about the love that Jesus has for him? You know, some scholars say it may even be both of those things. I'm more inclined to think that Paul is writing in reference to the love that Jesus has for him. And do you know why? Because I know my own relationship with the Lord. I know that my love, very often, for another person or for the Lord can be circumstantial. Based on the circumstances of my life, motivates the way that I love and how greatly I love. You know, and this is not a good thing. I'm just being honest here. Sometimes in my head, whenever I'm thinking about loving someone, I'm saying, well, what have you done for me lately? But Jesus' love for us is never like that. It's never like that. Jesus' love for Paul is a decided thing. He has love. He's demonstrated that love in the greatest way. Jesus' love for me and Jesus' love for you is not fickle. It is not based on circumstances. He has decided. So Paul says that the love of Christ controls him. And this is translated from a Greek word, um, senike. And other versions translate this word uh, that we have in our version as controls, as the word compels. For the love of Christ compels me. 
One translation, the New English Bible says that the love of Christ leaves us no choice. Paul says, because of Jesus' love for me, I have no option. I have no option. You know that feeling whenever you say, I'm just so happy I could explode. You know, or you're just so overwhelmed with joy. You just Well, that's like what Paul is saying here. I'm just so filled with his love that I don't have an option here. I am compelled. I am controlled. I have to share what I've heard. And it's not just pressure. I think it's compulsion. It's not just pressure. It's compulsion. So all of this is connected to Paul's conclusion at the end of verse 14. That one died for all, therefore all died. According to the uh, IVP commentary, Paul has assessed the evidence and come to the carefully thought out conclusion that one died for all, therefore all died. Jesus went to the cross as a criminal. But the real purpose was to be a sin offering for the world, for you and for me. Linda Belleville wrote, Jesus died a criminal's death, but the criminal was actually everyone else except Jesus. He went to the cross as the criminal, but you and I were the true criminals. Since all are sinners, everybody deserves punishment by death, but Jesus became the substitute. He filled in the gap. He stepped in where your need was. And based on that conviction, Paul draws the conclusion, therefore all died. So Christ died for all, therefore all died. So what does that mean if we died? And it begs kind of a question, so what? Well, based on his conviction and then his conclusion, Paul gives us a rationale in verse 15 that I think is the application for us from this part of the passage. He says, and he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. The love of Christ controls Paul. It keeps him from living for himself and instead causes him to pour out um, his life for others. I read a great quote. Paul Barnett writes in reference to this verse here, egocentricity has given way to Christocentricity. In other words, Paul took himself, who was at the center of his own life, and he wanted everybody to revolve around him, and now he removes that, and he put Christ's at the center here and he is living in a way to revolve around Christ so what about you who are you living for what are you living for in your life we've if you're a believer in Christ we've died to sin and we've died to self we're no longer our own therefore Paul writes from now on now when Hugh Jackman sings the song he says from now on I but the message of Paul is from now on we because the critical moment here is Christ's death. It impacts every one of us, whether we want it to or not. His triumph over death, his triumph over the grave reveals that this world is passing away. So all of those ways that we're attached to this world and to the things of this world, that's a vain thing. And so we're not going to go on living self-centered lives. I'm not going to make this life about me. I'm not going to make this life about all of what I want and what I want to do and what I want to accomplish. I'm going to make it about Christ. So as Christ's love has dominated us, it's put the old man to death, and Christ's death for, death for us, and his resurrection should change the way we live. So this is the way we do it. From now on, we no longer judge according to the flesh. You know what that means? 
It means we no longer see people through a worldly perspective. That's a real easy thing to do for us, isn't it? We judge a book by its cover. It's real easy to analyze when somebody walks up to you and determine who they are based on their clothing, based on their job, their education, the car they drive, where their house is, where their kids go to school. And we do that all the time. You know, Jesus, I mean, Paul did this with Jesus. He judged the book by the cover, and you know what? He rejected him because the Messiah did not make sense to him in human terms standing before him. And so he rejected him there. But now we see people as Jesus sees them. You know how the world sees people as objects? But Jesus sees people as sheep in need of a savior, of a shepherd. And that's the same way that we should see people. And we do not allow our worldly values to determine every decision that we have. Because we have a new set of values in Christ. So if we're in Christ, then all things are new. And so from now on, we stop living for ourselves, and then we start living as ambassadors. Look at verse 18. It says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You think you could pick out what the key word is in this passage over and over and over again? Reconcile, reconciled, reconciliation. That's the key here, okay? So if we're going to really grasp this, we better understand what he's talking about here. Reconciliation, you know this, is the restoration of a relationship that's been broken or severed. So it's two parties being reunited uh, that have been torn apart because of sin or because of wrongdoing. Now I know some of you probably walk in here with that today in your own life. You have relationships that are severed. And you can say that it's over something they did, but I'm just telling you, whenever we have a broken relationship, there's always sin involved. And it may be the other person's fault, but we all have sin in the way that we act toward other people. And you can't change them, but you can change yourself. And so we all come here with these broken relationships, and Paul is talking about the broken relationship that we have with God, the broken relationship we have with Jesus. Can you imagine now, y- y'all know what it's like when you do have a, you know, an a- awkward encounter with someone and it gets really difficult to have a conversation with them now and the work that it takes to reconcile, right? Nobody enjoys that. Can you imagine the work that it took for Paul to reconcile with Jesus? Because Paul lived as an enemy of Jesus. He wanted to wipe the idea of Jesus off the face of the earth. Everybody who claimed to carry his mantle, he wanted to see them dead or abandoning that. And now all of a sudden, Paul's going to be reconciled to God. That must have been difficult, right? Except what God had already done through Jesus. In order to be reconciled to God, all we need is Jesus. You know, we sit by and wonder, you know, sit back and wonder, you know, God, I've got all this baggage. How can I be made right before you? The truth is we do have baggage. We come before God with all kinds of things. And I don't know your life. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know the things that are in your past. I don't know the things that are going on in your life right now as you're sitting in this pew, as you're joining us by television, 
or when you walk out of here. And I can imagine that some of you say, how can I be made right before God if you knew what was going on? But here's the deal on all of this. God initiates reconciliation with humanity every single time. Reconciliation is, with God is not dependent on you. It's not dependent on me. Jesus is the linchpin. So you may bring all your baggage, but it will never outweigh the grace that Jesus can bring. That's a critical thing to know and to realize. So having been reconciled to God, we are now entrusted with this word, with this responsibility, this ministry to be reconcilers. The ministry of reconciliation. And you think about how difficult that can be. Reconciliation is hard work, but because of God's gift of Jesus, the path to reconciliation with God is easy, but it's not automatic. We may think it's an automatic thing. Well, I do the right stuff. It's not automatic. I come to church. It's not automatic. That's not the way that it works. God is expecting those who have been reconciled now to be reconcilers. And so we are made as ambassadors for Christ. And this should be an obvious thing. People should see that. They should see that we are coming in the name of the living God. Um, This past spring, I uh, took a trip to Israel. And while I was there, uh, we went to Masada, the uh, the group I was with. So, of course, um, I won't go into all the details about that. But some of you have been there before. You're familiar. But we had to take this uh, sky tram, essentially, up to the top of Masada, which is this fortified area on top of a hill or on a mountain uh, that's hard to get to. That's the critical part about it. So as we're piling into the, the sky tram thing, I notice that there are these people cutting in line. I'm kind of a rule follower, so I'm like, what are they doing, you know? And then I realize, oh, they're important people. You know, and important people get to cut, right? The rest of us don't. So important people are cutting in, and uh, they pile in. And then I notice they're treating one person as more important than the rest. And then I recognize them. It was the ambassador from Israel to the United Nations. And I thought, I need a selfie with him, you know, because he's there and Maybe you don't think that, but I did, and so because uh, nobody will believe me later. So I walked up to him and talked to him and uh, said, uh, you know, I'm from South Carolina, where Ambassador Nikki Haley is from. And uh, he says, oh, are you from Charleston? And I said, no, I'm from the Midlands. Um, I tell him, and I'm from Columbia, same region where she's from. He's like, oh, Ambassador Haley is a good friend. And uh, so it was real obvious to me, this guy's important. He's coming as an ambassador. Well, an ambassador comes on the authority of the government, on the authority of the leader. He doesn't come to speak on behalf of himself or his family, but he comes to speak on behalf of the leader. It's the same thing for you and me as ambassadors of Christ. We are certified representatives of the kingdom of heaven. Do you live like that? As if you are a certified representative of the kingdom of heaven. And we're certified representatives to live in a certain way, to be able to share this message of hope with other people. And the message is not just to compel them or to force them or to manipulate them. That's not what it is. Paul says we beg you to be reconciled because we ache for what we know is the reality of your life and your future. And it's not automatic. It's something that must be done to be reconciled to God. So God sent Christ as his agent on earth to make reconciliation possible. And then God uses ambassadors like Paul to continue the agenda, uh, to call people to repentance. So Paul is communicating that to the Corinthians and to you and me. But he's also saying, 
we should view our lives as ambassadors in the same way. We're working together with him. So how do we apply that this morning? As ambassadors of Christ, we get to bring God's truths and God's wisdom into every interaction and every conversation we have. That's what we're supposed to do. Every interaction, every conversation, we can bring God's truth to bear there. We can, we can speak his truth into those interactions. That's what we're to do. We don't come representing a political party. We don't come representing some special interest group or a race or a nationality. We don't come as um, capitalists or socialists. We come as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, and we are to represent his interests in our world, specifically in our families, in our neighborhoods, in our places of employment, in our schools. We are to represent God's values there, and we demonstrate it in the way that we live by allowing the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our life, and people see it. They say they live by different values because they see that love and that joy and that peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control coming out in our hearts and in our lives and in our conversations. And they say there's something different. And it's because we come in the name of the living God. So as those who have been redeemed, we say from now on we stop living for ourselves. We start living as ambassadors. And we stay urgent with the gospel. Verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you want to understand the gospel, you can just use that verse right there. It's so clear for us this morning. God has made Jesus, who was sinless, to be sin. This does not mean that Jesus became a sinner. Because Jesus, although he's fully human, lived a perfect life. But God made him to be our sin offering, to take our place, to trade with us, which is what we so desperately needed. And this is how God reconciles humanity to himself. Is that right there? You and I need a substitute. The theological concept is substitutionary atonement. We need somebody else to stand in our place and pay the bill because we can't do it. And so that's what happens. All of a sudden, we come before God with all of our sin, everything I've ever thought or said or done that displeases God, that's hurtful, that's hateful. He's taken all of that, and he's placed it on Jesus, who's on the cross. So I get to transfer my sin onto him, and there it is. But even with that great sin transfer, I still stand incomplete because I don't have righteousness. Even though now the wrong stuff's gone, but what about the good stuff? On my best day, I fail at being righteous. And God takes the righteousness of Christ and he wraps it around me. We call that imputed righteousness. And now whenever God sees me, he sees me in the righteous robes of Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, it's a good gift that God's given us because I get to give him all my bad stuff and he gets to give me all his good stuff, right? In other words, I get to give him all of me and I get all of him. That's a great gift. But Paul reminds us not to receive it in vain. He's saying to the church at Corinth, don't squander this. Don't just receive this and never pass it on. You've been reconciled. Now be the ambassador 
who's at work bringing others to God. And on the other hand, for some of you, don't just hear the message and do nothing with it. Some of you have been coming here for years. You've got your own Bible. You've read it. You've got parts of it memorized. You go to Sunday school. You come to worship. You sing the truths of God's Word uh, in our choir. But you've never quite received the grace that's in Jesus Christ because it's not automatic. God says we must be reconciled to Him. Do you hear the Holy Spirit saying, today is the acceptable time? Today is the day of salvation. I know a lot of you have joined us here this morning by television, through the internet, or you're here sitting in a pew this morning, and it's maybe clicking in your head and maybe even clicking in your heart. And so I want to ask the question, have you ever received the grace that is in Jesus by believing in him for the forgiveness of sins? The Bible says, to as many as received him, to those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This is a day of great opportunity, but it's also a day of great danger. And so what will you do with it? Will you receive it? Will you believe in it? This is the climax of history. And the Lord says, today is the acceptable day of salvation for you. What are you waiting for? So God has rescued us. And in light of what he's done as believers in Jesus Christ, from now on, we are to stop living for ourselves. We are to start living as ambassadors. And we are to stay urgent with the gospel. That's a real specific thing if you're a believer in Jesus. But today, maybe you come as a seeker. And today, you may just want to start all over. You may want something fresh. You may want a new thing for your life. I memorized 2 Corinthians 5.17 a long time ago. It says, if any man is in Christ... He's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Today is the day of salvation. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come, to worship, to be challenged, to be convicted. And now, Lord, to respond. Father, I pray that each of us will apply this truth to our lives. These ancient truths that are your true word. Worthy enough enough for us to build our lives on. God, help us now today to live differently in light of this. Father, for those who don't know you, we pray that today would be the day of salvation in their hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. going to offer an invitation. If God's speaking to your heart, I invite you to respond. Some of you need to join our church, and we'd love to have you. Some of you need to make a decision for Christ, and today is the day. You stand. Our choir will sing. You respond.